This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. See, we might have to do a switch. Yeah, let's get, let's get started. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk. We had started to talk a little bit about, uh, so you've got a new book out uh, and I've got a new book out uh, at the same time. I've even seen some ads where they put them uh, alongside one another for Christmas recommendations. So we're, we're joined at the hip that way. And of course, we come from similar backgrounds that we were talking about before. We both came out of sports and we both have gone into other areas that uh, people have come to know us a little bit better. Um, your book, The President and the Freedom Fighter, my book, The, uh, the Stranger in the Lifeboat, which I have here, um, both kind of deviations from that sports world from a lot. But I always said that I learned from the sports world how to tell a story. Uh, and, you know, there's winning and losing and there's agony and ecstasy and there's the effort and there's the culmination moment and there's all that. And you put all that into a novel. I assume there's similar things for even writing, his, you know, historical books. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. Number one is my first two books were The Games Do Count and It's How You Play the Game because I was always more interested in the people. And I think we were talking about this other day, just like what you learn in sports when you compete. Even if, uh, you know, if you care about what happens, I don't care if you're playing, um, playing for the freshman team in your high school tennis match. If you care, if you train and you want to be successful at that, what you learn along the way, whether your coach puts you in, whether you win or lose, I think these are indelible moments because it's life in a, in a, in a capsule real quick. How do you act under pressure? How do you respond to discipline? How do you respond as a teammate? What do you take away from that? And if you don't like what you did, how are you going to change it? So I interviewed 72 people about what they learned as athletes, but they were not known as athletes, whether it was George H.W. Bush, 41, or whether it was uh, Jack Welch, who was a former GE chairperson. So those are the things I loved about sports because I was a Division II soccer player without distinction, but I wanted to be great and I wasn't. And mm -hmm. I wanted to make sense of that. And the thing is that always interests me more than the games. I never really cared much about the games. I was a fan of the Mets and Yankees, but I always cared about the people. I always loved the trajectory. Like that Kurt Warner story is exactly why I follow sports. Is that is this going to happen? Is he going to play? Is they going to be successful? Is he going to win a Super Bowl? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. I'll take ten. I'll take one of them every ten years. To me, it uh, it means more. You know, to that's what always. Uh, intrigued me about sports yeah. and also boxing you know the boxing stuff you get those two personal stories and then when they get in the ring and they think they think what they're going to encounter the turbulence and how they're going to overcome it that's what always interests me those those moments yeah. um, and then when i had a chance to do news and then uh history was always the other passion uh and then sports i don't know how you did it when sports sports to me was no longer fun when it was like a job i like working but it definitely was work so I lost my I lost my outlet when I did it for a living. Did you mm. did you that happen to you? Um, yes and no. You know they always say, "Well, do you still root when you cover sports?" And I say, "I root for people." You know, if there's a good guy uh, like Matthew Stafford was here with the Lions for for many years as the quarterback where I live in Detroit, never won anything because the Lions never won anything. And then he gets traded to Los Angeles. I watch all the Los Angeles games now because I like him. He's a good guy. I came to know him here and I want to see him do well out there. Otherwise I would never watch a Rams game. So I think it becomes more of a, you know, a personal thing 
uh, and you root for the people. But yeah, you know, for me, it was always about the writing, uh, Brian. And I got a chance to write some amazing things yeah. in sports, got a chance to travel the world. You know, I wrote everything from all the big things like World Series and Super Bowls and all that. I've done a zillion of those to the Iditarod dog sled race in Alaska, which I covered, or running with the bulls in Pamplona, which I covered. So, you know, you know, I don't get a chance to do that in regular life. And it enabled me to become a better storyteller. No question. I, I just did a quick thing on sports. I, I never rose to your levels, but I was in those big locker rooms and those big events. And I also loved what the difference is when you walk into a locker room and they can't wait to see you, as opposed to you walk in a locker room and they wish you would die. You know, <laughs> they don't want to talk to the press. So when, they, like, for example, the women's soccer team, so as a soccer player, I knew them when no one cared. I remember their first World Cup that they won with uh, Michelle Akers was there. And she was the best player on the planet. And nobody cared, but I cared. And then when they were drawing 100,000 at the Rose Bowl, when you walk in the locker room, they cared about you because you were there first. Right. That stuff I loved. You know, when, when Bill yeah. Clinton was going to the locker room, they'd still rather talk to me because I put my time in and I knew what I was talking about because yeah. I actually played since I was five. Right. right. So that to me, like when you walk into a major league cross locker room, you know, when they first launched, I love those stories as much. And they're the best players in the world. And they can't yeah. believe you're going to talk to them on camera. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to Derek Jeter, who was always polite, but they and or Paul O'Neill, who never yeah. was, uh, and they, you know, they were just looking at you like, "Are you done? That's a dumb question." And right. the attitude that Barry Bonds right. gave every time he asked him a question—it's the difference between—it's yeah. the difference between being one of a thousand and one of one. I remember when uh, I had that experience with the U.S. Luge team when I first started as a as a sports writer, very, very, very beginning, back in the '80s. I covered the Luge team overseas. I was the only reporter that ever wrote anything about the Luge team. And at the end of the year, they, they called me up and they invited me over to a thing and they gave me an award, the U.S. Luge Media Award. And I said, has anyone ever won this before? And they said, we never even gave it out before, you know. We That's never had fantastic. anybody to give it to. So he gave it to us. And, I, you know, I've remained friends with some of those guys over the years. So you're right. It's, it's much easier to be unique in a small sport than it is, you know, a, one of the many right. fish in the locker room. It's a cool. Yeah, story. Yet, yet they are the greatest in what they do. Absolutely. You know, it just so yeah. happens the fans didn't come. Yeah, yeah. Different sport, different crowd. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah. So I want to ask you about your book. Perhaps you want to ask me about mine and, yeah. and, and the process a little bit. So, uh, the president of the freedom fighter and Frederick Douglass is a fascinating character. And I know a little bit more about him than I might otherwise, because as I mentioned in the previous time we tried this, he, he gave one of the famous uh, speeches uh, and papers about Haiti, uh, which I'll tell you about later. But what, what uh, drove you to that particular idea to combine those two men, uh, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass? Because if you read uh, these Lincoln biographies, which I did, I never thought to myself, well, I could do that better. You know, I read I read David Blight's book on Frederick Douglass, and I thought to myself, man, um, that was complete. That was great. And I just thought, how do I write about this era? And I'm trying to move up in time, and I'm coming out for Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers. And I thought, you know, I could do the Mexican War, but I don't think there's enough there, although there there is some angles. I go, how do I do the Civil War in a respectful way? Because I don't want to duck race. And everybody's talking about race in America. And I think they need context about where we are and where we're going. 
not that I'm the oracle of wisdom, but what if I told it through these two guys, you know, and both are self-made men. I'm still full for that same thing. No breaks. Nobody expected anything. You get that in sports, just like you were saying. Uh, nobody would have bet on Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass to do anything in life, let alone be two of our most important Americans mm. ever. And that's why I thought that's the similarity. Said they did get a chance to meet. I go, this is going to work. And then Frederick Douglass was very critical of Lincoln. Why? Because he expected a lot of him. Because when you have a lot of promise, you know, you, you raise the bar in terms of what you expect of that person. And that's fine. We do it in life. We do it as parents. We do it uh, with friends on a daily basis. So I just thought I could do this and prevent holistic, realistic looks at both of them, how their lives were parallel, how they came together and what it meant to the country. And that's why I pitched it. And I also thought that CRT 1619 were emerging. And I would love to give the narrative based on their quotes and their beliefs, not my beliefs of what they thought. They were, they were so heavily, they wrote about, they wrote all their speeches are there. The, all the biographies about them are there. The eyewitnesses are there. And then in Frederick Douglass's case, he did his biography three times. So I know exactly what he thought. And he wrote editorials in his own newspaper. So I thought, let's just talk about a guy who really had it tough. And then you could see how far America came. Mm. And when you do these historical books, now that you've done a number of them, all bestsellers, do you, do you have a pattern, you know, that you've taken from one to the next that you say, okay, I, I know that this is a great way to assemble it because you're also, you're doing a million other things. So this isn't just, let me sit around the house. And when it comes to me, it comes to me. I have to imagine you have a time period right. where you write your books and then that's it. You got to get onto your TV show, your radio show. So what's the, what's the well, formula? Number one, um, I have an advantage because I'm up at 2.30. I've done seven hours of work before anyone, you know, a lot of people wake up or, you know, they're in commutation. And I'm, I have a lot of energy. So I'm done at noon. I'm a little tired. I'll get something to eat. Then I can go. With this pandemic, this was an interesting challenge. One, it was a help because silence in this office right now, there was only, there was only a handful of people. Number two, and not a lot of shoots to go on because all the events were canceled and the shoots, they wouldn't let me in. Right. So I'm doing Fox Nation, What Made America Great, which brings me to these people, gets me these great contacts. You do this all the time. You get the great contacts, you get their trust, and then they start telling you, I got something to show you. And then they introduce you this, this, and this. And I'm always trying to find something unique in an angle with new uh, Andrew Jackson, especially. The, the people at the, uh, at, the, at the Hermitage were fantastic. I really, and I did features on them, and I'm giving them experience and exposure. So I didn't feel, uh, I didn't feel it was a one-way street. But my first thing is I got to get the pitch down to people I know. So I don't have to do a formal pitch anymore. I don't know if you do. Do you have to do a formal pitch? Um, not not formal so much with my editors. We, we say, you know, we're going to do fiction this time. We're going to do nonfiction. What's your idea for a novel? I'll present three or four of them that I'm thinking about. And they'll say, we like this one. And then hopefully I like that one too. And then we go. Yeah. So, so with me, I knew I was going to do the next thing. We're working on it. And they said, you know, we should probably... Uh, avoid race. This country is right, ready to explode. You know, the it was before the George Floyd, but 1619 was out there. And then the curriculum became a curriculum. Uh, and the easy look was people that didn't like 1619 don't want to talk about slavery. That is not true. So how do I do this in a sensitive, uh, non-political way through their words and through their eyes and through their actions? That's what I thought would do it. So that was my approach. Here's my formula. My formula is I have such a great relationship with my editor. The first thing I do is what I feel most comfortable, and that's talk about it. We record everything. And they say, tell me the story. What intrigues you about this? So I sell it to them, even though I don't have to sell. The deal's basically done. 
And then we sit there and write, this girl, Bria Sanford, and we write it down, we go back and forth in summary form. And then we talk about, she brings it back to her boss and they come back and they go, yeah, we like this because you're really excited about this element of it. We know you're gonna bring this across. And then we'll break it up into chapters, write the summary on the chapters, get some additional research. And what I try to do is start with the quotes on the topic and then build around them. So I always am concerned about accuracy like anybody should be, unless you're doing your thing on the fiction side. Right. So, uh, so I, I start with the quotes that I build out, work with a historian to make sure it's accurate, try to get new information from the contacts I had. This one was especially challenging because I didn't do the feature first. This is usually I was already on the ground with the Alamo and the Hermitage and Jackson. Right. And I did George Washington. I knew all those people with the spy ring. And I was at the University of Virginia at the Jefferson Library. And they, I got their trust. And I, they were a phone call away and a text away, especially with the Military Museum and the Marine Museum. So I couldn't really go. So I was, I was kind of alone in my books, almost from my college, uh, more than my other books where I was out there. So I, I blow up the summaries, write the summaries, go back and forth and had no interactive contact for about a year, really, uh, because wow. of what was going on in the country. Wow. And um, and that's it. And I, I just felt I just feel like I try to keep it active and fox like I cut out a lot of the background and the detail intentional and just try to make get right to the point as quick as possible. And I don't mind if people say you're readable and accessible. I look at that as a compliment. Uh, I, I don't want to talk over anyone's head. And you know what? I am the ultimate medium intellect. I have a gr above average work ethic and average intelligence. And that's, I don't try to overstep. Hmm. That's a, that's a very interesting thing to say. And, uh, you know, a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't say that about themselves because they think that they would be taken as an insult. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But um, I hear what yeah. you're saying about particularly from critical response or like what they think your books need to be. You know, my books are this is this is the size of them. They're no they're never any bigger than this. In fact, Tuesdays with Maury, when I wrote Tuesdays with Maury, it was supposed to be a 300 page book, but I was so green to the process that uh, I didn't even really know how many pages a 300 page book turned out to be typed. So I just basically had 300 type pages, which is nowhere near 300 real pages. By the uh, way, were you typing? Were you? Or, yeah, were, like, back you in those days. On, on yeah, sure. Sure. Okay. Back in those days. Yeah. And so uh, I, I turned it in and you know, I, I wanted to write Tuesdays with Maury as simply as possible because it was a beautiful story about an old man who was dying and talking to a young man about it. it didn't need flowery, this, that, or the other. And when they said to me, well, we got a problem here. Book's supposed to be 300 pages. It's only about 180. And I said, well, I, you know, that's all I got. And uh, to their credit, they said, well, we'll just make it a small, a small book. And so they made Tuesdays with Maury a small book because otherwise it would have looked right. like a comic book, you know? And then unbeknownst to me, I mean, Tuesdays with Maury was a total surprise. It was supposed, I, I wrote it to pay my professor's medical bills. I gave him the money for it. It wasn't supposed to be a tiny little book. And I was going back to sports writing. And then all of a sudden it took off and it became this incredible thing and ultimately became the most widely read memoir in the world. Yep. And, and from that point, all of my books were going to be this size. So every book I've ever put out has been this size. So I got that right off the bat 
you know, people sometimes don't take me as seriously because well, how serious can a book be when it's this size, you know? And then I, I also write something, uh, Brian, that I think you can appreciate because I've seen you talk about it too, which is I write with hope. And there was a critic once who was trying to, uh, you know, insult me and, and, and said, well, he's the king of hope. Yeah. And I thought, how is that yeah. an insult? Yeah, how not... is that an insult? Like I would, I put that on my tombstone. I it would be fantastic. And so, uh, you know, that doesn't always get you critical acclaim either when you write optimistically or with inspiration or hope or you write about faith or things like that. These are easy targets in a cynical society, but I've never worried about that because I think like you, I'm trying to reach the readers who, who are interested in reading the kind of thing that I write. Yeah, my, my hope, uh, it's, uh, uh, I just realized I said hope. My hope is that if you read this, you go, I gotta go learn more about Douglas or Lincoln. And that's right. great. I mean, I read Ron Chernow's book on Grant. Uh, and when I was done, he was so good, so thorough. I actually thought I lost a family member. I mean, I really, it was unbelievable wow. to see how he struggled at the end of his life and this great character who no one thought could amount to anything. And his value increases by the day, the more we study him. And yep. I go, I know one thing, I can't do that better. So I'm not going to try. And I don't, have do the, I don't have the time. Yeah. So I thought I'd just, I do it different. I, I mean, I don't know what's next, but I do like to talk about America's journey on race. And I don't think our country's perfect, but what I think is great about us is we try to be, and we're a toughest critic. And I think that you, you don't have to be all uh, America's perfect and it's how dare you talk bad about it. Uh, and uh, America's terrible, born, uh, you know, born on stolen land uh, uh, through slavery. That's not right either. But what it is is a complex story, but it's the one I'm honored to be a part of. Yeah. And if I could help give people patriotic, you can be patriotic while studying. You could love Jefferson, but hate that he had slaves. You could do both. You know, you don't have to take a, put a noose around his neck and rip a statue down. Because fundamentally, um, I think, if, for example, in New York right now, there are no New York good New York teams. Yankees are good, but not great. They consider that a disaster um, in New York. It's okay for Giant fans to be tough on Gi the Giants, but they're still fans. And right. I just wish... My hope is that people read these books saying, no matter what you think of the country and how wrong slavery was and how long it took us to get rid of it, I hope you understand the, good, the goodness of our country and how many people fought to make sure that everybody was free and eventually would be equal. And if you come from the point where I want to be on your team, I think we're all on the same page. And then you can be critical. Sometimes what worries me is I feel like people don't want to be here. They don't understand how good they have it, even though we're not perfect. Yeah, well... I said, someone who goes to Haiti every month for the last 12 years of my life, I'm pretty aware of how lucky we are to be in America. And, and so are our kids uh, who've managed to come up here sometimes. And I've got a number of them in college here right now with Stranger in the Lifeboat. Right. Uh, in that I took an issue right. that I think is going on in the world today, not political, but about hope and about help. Like during the pandemic, we were all asking for help, you know, help me not get sick, help me not go to the hospital. Help me. And, and I thought, well, you know, a lot of times we ask for help, but we expect help to arrive like we're ordering a deli sandwich. You know, we want it in five minutes. It has to look at the way we expect it. it. has to taste the way we expect it. And if it doesn't, we're like, whoa, wait, what's going on here, God? You know, uh, you know, I expected my prayers to be answered. And we think that we're being forsaken. But then 10 years later, we look back on it and we say, well, you know, that thing that was really terrible, if that hadn't happened, then this wouldn't happen, this wouldn't happen, this wouldn't happen. So I guess... Looking back, and it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Well, if it is the best thing that couldn't have happened to you 10 years from now, it's the best thing that can happen to you now. 
It's just that we don't accept that because we don't trust. So I wanted to create a story about the ultimate asking for help situation and then people who don't accept it when it comes. So I created this tale where there's, there's this explosion on a luxury yacht. There are 10 survivors. Half of them are the rich guests and half of them are the staff. And they're in this lifeboat for three days and nobody's coming for them. It's the ultimate terrible situation. There are sharks in the water. They're running out of food. They're crying out for help. You know, please, somebody help us, help us. Then they see a body floating in the water and they pull the body into the boat. And it's this young, average looking guy, nondescript, nothing special about him. And they pepper him with questions. He doesn't say a word. And finally, one of the passengers says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. Yeah, I read and, that. That's, and, yeah. and instead of saying, great, we're saved, they go, no, you're not. You know, they go, no, you're not. You just you look at you. You're some kook who got banged his head. And, you know, they say, if you're the Lord, what are you doing here? And he says, well, haven't you been calling me? And they go, oh, yeah, right. So, so you, what, you're here to save us? He says, well, I can only save you if everyone in the boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. Well, you know, with 10 people from disparate backgrounds in all different countries and money backgrounds and all that, that's not likely to happen easily. And so the story goes on as, this, as the situation gets more dire and shark attacks and storms and food and all the rest of it. Some of them start to change their mind and some of them don't. And it's really a parable about, you know, accepting help when it isn't in the form that we expected it to come. And it seems to have found a, uh, a real nice audience like like your book is. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Well, So, Mitch, let me ask something. Even though you're a deep thinker uh, with, great, uh, with a great philosophy that people digest, were you intimidated because you're not Cardinal Dolan? Were you intimidated because you're not Joel Osteen? Yeah. It was that, that part because it intimidated me to write something about history because I know – I'm not a historian. I just care. And yeah. I'm going to put the work in. So did that intimidate you? Well, I, it's a really good question. And I did probably what, what you do in a certain way, too. I tried not to step out of my lane. So if I'm writing about a fictional story about a guy who claims to be God, I didn't infuse it with all kinds of religious references or, you know, he wasn't Jesus. He wasn't Moses. He wasn't this. He's just a character that I created. And the things that he sh shares are not dogmatic. They're not one religion over another. They're general philosophies about, about love and life. For example, uh, one of the passengers asks him, you know, do you answer prayers? If you're God, do you answer prayers? He says, well, I answer all prayers, but sometimes the answer is no. Now, I've, I found Where did that, that come from? Uh, experience in life. I mean, okay. because I've had to come to accept that, you know. But that's not a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu concept. That's something that I happen to think is true or the ultimate one. Um, one of the passengers says to him, he's, he's mourning his wife who died and, and he takes it out on this guy. He says, if you're really God, then explain one thing, which is the ultimate thing we all want to ask, right? Why do people have to die? Why did you take my wife? And the response he gets is, why is it the people on earth always say when someone dies, why did God take them? Maybe a better question would be, why did God give them to us? What did we do to deserve them, to to merit their love or their attention or the memories that they made with us, you no. know, who, who are we to have it? Now, and can I ask you that real quick? Where did that come from? 
Like I, well, I we all honestly, have parents, and we say things, and we go, well, "I don't know why I said that." I, well, that sounds. I'll tell you where it came from. Uh, it came from uh, a little girl who we adopted from Haiti uh, when she had a brain tumor. This was a number of years ago, about five, six years ago. And uh, we brought her up and she, she became our daughter for two years. We traveled around the world trying to find a cure for this inoperable brain tumor, DIPG, which almost always takes children after four or five months. She lived two years and we traveled around the world trying to find a cure for her for two years. In the end, we weren't able to find a cure. We found something equally valuable. We found a family, which was amazing, uh, but she died. And when she died, I was angry with the world and I was angry with God. And I was angry with, you know, how can you be benevolent and not be benevolent to a seven-year-old? And for a number, a couple of years, I wrote a book called Finding Chica, which was really written in pain about the whole experience of, of being with Chica in, in those two years. But after four years have passed, I started to look at it and I said, well, wait a minute, you know, my wife and I didn't have children of our own. We prayed that we would, we didn't have them. But then 15, 16, 17 years later, suddenly we had a five-year-old and she was sleeping at the foot of our bed and she was waking us up for breakfast and we were having all the joys that you have with a little child in your, in your life. And we had that for two years. And I began to think, well, who are we to deserve that? Like we were way too old to become parents. And yet we got that dream to come true for a few years. And I started to look at it as we didn't lose a child, we were given a child. And I'm sure there are other people who have lost people in their lives, be they children or loved ones, husbands, wives, relatives, who think that same way. So I took that personal experience and I kind of put those words into this character who claims to be God as a, as a you know, piece of advice. So the answer, that's the answer to that question. But wow. a, lot this, a lot of the stuff that I get, a lot of it's from Maury uh, back when we sat together. A lot of it's from other wise people I've, I've learned from, you know, like you, when you hear good things from other wise people, Right. You want to put them, you want to ingest them and kind of share them with the world. And I try to do that in my stories. You know, what's interesting is when you read about uh, Norman Vincent Peale and Zig Ziglar and uh, Anthony Robbins of the world, and they try to inspire people to, to reach their potential, whatever it is. They always say, go do it. So, okay, I always wanted to open up a deli. I'm tired of working for people. Go do it. Go try it. Well, I don't know how to do it. I know anyone in commercial real estate. Uh, I got to put money down. I don't have the money. But go try it. Go, go out and make it, go make it happen. And the, instead of saying, well, I'm not a philosophy major, I don't have a PhD in theology, you're going, well, this is what I think. I'll use some resources and I'll write it. And if you don't like it, don't buy it. But you'll, you'll, you want to tell a story that's going to help people. Right. And I just think that, that, that you can learn a lot, not only the content to your books, but the way you approach life. If you want to do something, go do it. Don't say, I've never started an orphanage before. I never worked internationally before. I don't really know anybody in Haiti. You're not going to know anybody unless you go over there. And I'm, right. not, I'm not saying I do that all the time, but I always know that I really regret if things don't work out, if I just go try it. And, oh, and those people see it. You like to be intrigued. You like to get up every day and be intrigued. Well, I look to something to motivate me. Well, do what you're doing. It's pretty intriguing on a daily basis. It's unscripted, right? Yeah, well... Yes, running an orphanage in Haiti is, <laughs> is unscripted. Yeah. While yeah, they're every... taking hostages. Yeah, we were there for that uh, when they were kidnapped. We were there for the assassination. Unfortunately, we seem to be there when everything goes wrong. But you're, you're really right about uh, taking a chance. And, you know, I got some of the best things that have happened to me have been foisted on me. And that's why I, I wrote, you know, like, you don't expect the help to come. You don't know when it's coming. It could be divine intervention. I didn't, when Maury, when I saw Maury on television talking to Ted Koppel about what it was like to die, my first instinct wasn't, 
oh man, I should go visit him every Tuesday and write a book about it. And my instinct was, oh God, you know, I was so close with him in college. And then I, I, I haven't called him in 16 years. Shame on me. You know, what am I going to do? And I'm so embarrassed. And now I know he's sick. And I made one phone call. I thought that was going to be it. One phone call turned to one visit. I thought one visit was going to be it. One visit turned to two and two turned to more and more and more. And then I, I, he, he told me he was in debt for his medical bills. I said, well, I got to help him now. He told me that. How can I do? Maybe I can write a book. And that turned into that changed my whole life. And not once during the course of that process did I ever think, let me do this so I can change my life. It happened to me. It's like that John Lennon quote. Yeah. It's like that John Lennon quote. Life is what happens to you while you're busy making plans. You know, and, and I was busy making other plans and then life happened. Same thing with an orphanage. Same thing even with writing a novel. I'd written Tuesdays with Maury and it sold so many copies that all anybody wanted from the next book six years later was Wednesdays with Maury, you know, or Chicken Soup and Maury or something like that. I said, yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not gonna do that. I can't, I can't, I don't know what to do. And so I said, well, I'm just gonna write a novel. And they said, that's idiotic. You're a nonfiction writer. You know, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. I said, yeah, but that's what everybody said about Tuesdays with Maury. Nobody wanted to publish that book. So I wrote The Five People You Meet in Heaven and it, it became one of the most successful first novels ever. And I tried it just like you said. So right. I'm with you. Try it, don't you know, fight the fear and, and push through it. Right, um, yeah, just interesting. Uh, the other thing was uh, last night I interviewed Tim Green who has ALS yeah. and, I, and I interviewed him and you know this. Well, actually, I don't know if the technology was there. He, I saw him at a ranger, I'm, I'm friends with him because uh, because he was broadcast for Fox and we got along and we always kept in touch. He started writing these books and coming on. He writes kids books, you know, young adult, like Matt Christopher type. Books. Right, right. And uh, he's also a lawyer and he multifaceted, you know him. So he also, when my son went to college at Syracuse, he went over and took care of him. You know, he's like, hey, big adjustment. Well, how can I help you? You're working with the football team. Let me help you out. Just a great person. He's got six kids of his own. So as this is happening, he gets more and more appreciative of life. And he said to me, even last night, he, you know, you, you get used to it. I went to the Ranger game with him and I'm in the box and he's got to look, he's got to catch a letter with his eye and the letter pops up, catch another letter, the letter pops up. That's how he wrote the whole book with his eyes. Right. Is that unbelievable? I mean, I can't get over it. And yeah. then they synthesized his voice from his book on tape. So he's able to sound like him. I want to thank you for taking time to uh, chat and invite me on the Instagram and, uh, encourage people to get the president of the freedom fighter. Uh, and it's a really interesting book and Frederick Douglass, especially particularly interesting character to me. And I'm glad we had a little chance to, uh, to chat. That's really cool. Uh, no, it's, it's my honor. Uh, when you get to New York, uh, please let me know. And okay. soon we'll be able to travel soon. Yes. So. We have to eat in eaten someplace without all kinds of documentation. Yeah. Yes, right. absolutely. Go get them. Thank you everybody Christmas. who's writing. We're yeah. reading that. We really appreciate everybody that's been watching. Thanks. Yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.